You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Daniel Itzkowski, who is the CEO and co-founder of SidePocket and Skunklock. SidePocket is an SEC-registered investment advisor bringing cutting-edge technology and quantitative strategies to the everyday retail investor. Skunklock is the first-ever bicycle, motorcycle, scooter, and moped lock to fight back against thieves using chemicals. This interview is packed full of information for both hardware founders, software founders, and people that are interested of the future of fintech. All right, now let's begin today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Daniel, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. Now, I'm super excited for you to be here because, well, it turns out we know all the same people. In fact, I'm actually very amazed that we haven't crossed paths earlier, considering literally for everyone at home, we've had past guests that we're both connected with. Tonight's event later on that we're recording, I'd say 80% of the audience are mutual friends. I'm pretty excited for this. And I know our audience is going to love this interview based on your background, and what you're working on right now. Let's just get right into it. Daniel, can you tell our audience a little bit about your career up until this point? Sure. Sean, thanks for having me. And that is hilarious to me, actually. <laughs> I, think for, I think we discovered a new mutual friend probably once every week on average <laughs> over the last few months. Very funny coincidence. But, but yeah, happy to go into how I got to where I am today. And honestly, that, that story is a lot deeper, I think, than just the career story. Honestly, I think it started really with my parents uh, being immigrants from Poland. They actually left Poland in the 80s as refugees. Poland was under a communist regime and they came and settled in, in San Francisco. It was the traditional kind of immigrant story where I had three different career paths to choose because education and money is imperative for immigrant families, generally speaking. I could have either became a doctor, a lawyer, or go into finance at the time. Today, if you had the same experience, tech would be on that list. I hate blood. I can't memorize, but I, I had a natural knack for money. Naturally, everything in my early life predicated going into financial related or entrepreneurial. I actually started my first business when I was eight years old selling candy. I upgraded to you know, selling bootleg CDs when I was early teen and I was making so much money. My parents thought I was dealing drugs. I was definitely an entrepreneur through and through. And I followed that through college and ended up starting my career in the hedge fund world really for a brief time. But the entrepreneurial life sucked me in very quickly as I'd expected. It was... I probably left the professional world to be an entrepreneur a little too early. Life would have been a whole lot easier if I stayed a, a few more years and made money and had savings. But I gave up all of that to sleep on friends' couches and try to build things that people like to use. My, my first kind of entrepreneurial experience was a, a company I entered as a fourth co-founder, a product guy with a few design skills and a few business skills. And that didn't work out. We were just too early at the time and uh, a little bit undercapitalized. And, and then I just kept doing that for about a decade, really, almost a decade. And I think a more, more interesting part of that story is how 
I was able to survive for that long. Because as an entrepreneur, you don't get paid, right? Generally speaking, at least the first couple of years until you raise capital. And, and even if you raise capital, you're still heavily underpaid. The way I got by is I actually took a lot from what I learned in the financial world. And I built algorithmic trading models and I started trading derivatives. And that actually paid the bills. So I kind of fast forward to 2016, I founded my first breakout company. Every entrepreneur finally has that one that just works. It was a passion project. I'm a big cyclist, motorcyclist, electric skateboards, you name it, a little bit of an adrenaline junkie in that way. But I've had a lot of bikes stolen as well. And that's growing up in San Francisco. It's a rite of passage, right? I had two bikes stolen in about six months there. Wow. Yeah. Never that's go it. to the public library. <laughs> Never go there. Yeah. That's even worse than me, I think. Two and six months. It's gotten worse, apparently. I'll, I'll need to get you a skunk lock, but there you go. But yeah, that was my first company. Basically, the way I started was there was a lunch conversation inspired by a friend that had his bike stolen and he was using the best lock he can buy at the time. And it happened in broad daylight. And people took videos and pictures of the theft happening. They cut through with the angle grinder and took it to the police and nobody did anything about it. It was a very expensive electric bike. It was almost a gut reaction. It's like, and then finally ended up coming up with the skunk lock, which is on the, the edge of legality. We just figured out just barely what can we do to dissuade theft. That's not just building a bigger and stronger lock that is still legal. And, and basically we have these food grade chemicals under pressure inside the lock. And if you cut through it with the angle grinder, they come out under pressure and and it stops the thief in, in his trap. That was an accidental success in many ways, but I was very fortunate to have that as a breakout company. And, and really, that's when I guess people started in the business or in the community started taking me seriously as entrepreneurs. I started getting other opportunities from there. I built a strong investor network, I joined it, and joined as a managing partner of an investor relations firm called American Pillar Partners. I realized I'm very good at that process of helping companies raise capital and, and, and be attractive to investors. I realized that's one way I can make money while pursuing these companies that I want to start as well. And then fast forward again to April of 2020. At that point, keep in mind, when I built all these algorithms and, and was actively trading derivatives on the market just to pay the bills, I made the code and the signals available to family, friends, and, and on them that were just following it for for free on a rules basis. And I got a few phone calls in, in April of 2020. And essentially they were saying, I don't know what kind of magic you're doing, but we didn't lose any money or we outperformed every other strategy that we're doing. And many of these people were paying professional money managers a lot of money to manage your capital. They said, you need to create this into a company. And that's basically what we did. And then that brings us here where I have too many children to manage. One's an infant, one's a toddler, and another one's a, a teenager, I guess you could say. Let's go back to maybe that teenager. That is, I'm guessing Skunk Lock is a right. teenager. You mentioned that, well, it's just kind of luck, but it couldn't have been. You had too many failures going up to there. What that you learned going into it that made it a success? We came up with this idea, my co-founder and I. First thing I did was I actually, at the time I had an electric skateboard, I went down to Embarcadero and I started asking cyclists, hey, I ha I'm selling these locks for $100. Basically, they, if, if a thief cuts it, it'll explode with pepper spray. That's what I was telling these people. And I asked maybe nine or 10 
cyclists, just along the Embarcadero. I spent a few hours doing that. Half of them started taking money out of it. That was my crude way of validating the idea of whether it's just conceptually even uh, viable. At that point, I had no idea if it would be legal. I had no idea if, from an engine engineering perspective, it was, it was possible to even build it. But along the way, we, we did learn a lot of in that company. And, and a lot of it is, it comes down to, I think, how you get customer feedback. I think the biggest mistake I see a lot of startups making today is there's infinite numbers of tools where you can send out surveys. To, and, and that's what a lot of startups do. That's how they approach their customer development. They'll ask them a number of questions related to what kind of product that they want to see. And the, the problem with that approach is if I had instead given a survey to all these cyclists that I asked, they would have told me, yeah, we want bike locks that are stronger metal. And we want bike locks that have this cylinder locks that are much harder to pick and you need special tools and, and on and forth. And none of those attributes would have the core problem, which they really had. If you ask a hundred questions and just told me, but really, what do you want? If you kept asking, they would have said my bike to stop getting stolen <laughs> once a year. And that's why I think it's a big and a fallacy in, in a lot of the mainstream customer development processes. I don't think customers know exactly what they want. You have to show them a, a real... And, and that's the only way you're going to be able to understand that. And an example more... Uh, relevant to side pocket on the financial front, I think this is relevant. I see a lot of different financial companies trying to build investing apps. We have a, this is relevant to investing apps as well. I see a lot of different investment apps email me these surveys of what do you want to see in an investing app and, and what most kind of investors or new investors are going to respond is they're going to say, I want more info, better information on which stocks to. But the truth is, even with that information, most people don't have the time to, to trade actively. And they figure it out very quickly. They don't necessarily want to wake up at early in the morning and research and, and on. But that's as a result of this process of, of sending out these customer surveys with set, set questions. That's the kind of responses that you're going to get that really aren't very effective at driving uh, product innovation. That's fascinating that when you that a key to success is getting the market feedback, but it's got to be the right feedback and knowing what questions, I guess, to, to ask and, and who to ask. And your current company, you had the product, you were testing it in a way, and then you got market feedback of, we want more of this. And your bike lot, that's just genius going to the final customer and actually seeing them take out money. You know you have your pre-orders there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Your last company, though, the successful company, it was a physical product, whereas your current company, it's a software company. How is it different building a company versus a physical product company? That's a great question. As they say, hardware is hard. There's a lot of challenges with building hardware that doesn't exist, and namely building a supply chain that is consistent and down to getting physical material. One benefit of hardware products is that you generally it's acceptable to raise capital to build physical products through crowdfunding like Indiegogo, Kickstarter and so on. We did a Indiegogo campaign, of course, that kind of prolonged how long we needed or to take outside investment. But in general, I would say companies are much easier because there's a lot more talent to, to hire in terms of building the product. They're a lot more scalable. It's an it's a game of figuring out the right business model that's applicable to your company. Interesting. And now let's move to the company. 
it's in the fintech space. A lot's happened in the last few years in that space. And to be honest, unless you're in there, you probably don't really know what's going on. Can you update us on what's happened in this arena? Yeah, the fintech space has grown exponentially, especially if you include all the different sub-industries there, banking and wealth tech and and on. I think the most kind of growth is really that of commission-free trading. A lot of it was catalyzed by the pandemic. And everyone has tried trading for the first time, pretty much. I think these apps have seen more than 10 million new downloads over the last two years. And that's unprecedented growth. And I think I'm actually very thankful for these apps, although I don't necessarily think they're the best for most people. And most people do figure that out. And in the long term, I'm thankful because now there's millions more people that realize the value of investing. And investing is is not just people do to put their savings in. It's going to become a necessity considering the macroeconomic environment and inflation. And and who knows if if security is going to be around in 50 years, right? What we've actually found, especially from our beta users, is many of them did try trading first. They download one of these trading apps because it was commission-free. They don't necessarily understand in the background how broker brokerage apps make money with payment for order flow, margin lending, securities lending and, and forth. It, it seemed like a risk-free way to get into investing. Most of them said within six months, they, they quit because they just didn't have the time where they were losing money. It wasn't a great fit for them. And many of them actually told us they're looking in their words, an easy button. You answer a quick risk uh, questionnaire essentially, and then they spit out strategic asset allocation, what they call it, stocks and bonds. And that's about it. If the market drops 50% the next day, they basically tell you, wait it out. And as it turns out, for, for most people, that's not good enough. And that's why they actually were shying away from investing for such a long time. We're hoping to be the bridges that gap. We're not uh, necessarily a trading app. We have full automation and you have access to these systematic strategies. It's in ways self-directed because you get to choose which strategies, a quantitative systematic strategies that you invest in, but you don't have to do the trading yourself. We found that's very attractive to a lot of the people that that came from these commission-free trading apps. And we're not going to go into detail about actual trading recommendation because we want to avoid FINRA and the SEC here, but got a lot of questions for you on your company. One of the first things is a lot of researchers will say timing is the most important key to judge if a company will be successful. Why would you say right now timing is on your side? Yeah, that's a really important point. I think timing is imperative to the success of a company. And one thing that I will say, however, is the roots of this new company did not start in 2020. These are algorithms that I've been working on since leaving the financial world officially many years ago. It's been at, at least seven years. I, I really built them to, to my own cash flow problem. When I was an entrepreneur, before I was selling locks, I I guess you could say I had a very unconventional career. But now, as you might expect, a lot of kind of consumer level technology is really driven by innovation and infrastructure. A good example is really why Robinhood is successful is because they had a partnership with Apex Clearing. That was their clearing custodian. And they actually... Uh, allowed them to offer fractional shares to their clients. Without that capability early before they were doing self-clearing, they would have never been able to accomplish what they did. It's It wasn't just about being commission-free. It was about being able to attract 
a small investor with as little as $100. And in our case, it's it's similar in a way. Many of these strategies that we're using that are primarily driven by either trend following or mean revert and broadly speaking, tactical asset allocation, which is the other side of strategic asset allocation. It's it's really driven by underlying technology and, and partnerships that we are able to to make with great clearing and custody partners and ways doing the same thing where we're offering these strategies. We're not necessarily reinventing the wheel with with the strategies that we are offering, or I should say, we, we actually call them side pockets. A side pocket is a combination of different strategies. And, and the way we do that is not all strategies perform well in every single different kind of economic regime or environment. And in the last 10 years, everybody's been a genius because we've been in a relatively low interest rate bull market with relatively low volatility historically. What we're actually offering is is these strategies that previously you could potentially find a institutional money manager or a hedge fund that they would uh, apply them for you. We're offering these quantitative systematic strategies that an investor can fund with as little as $100 or $500. And and previously, that was not really available in the market. You could only find that in hedge funds or with professional money managers. And generally speaking, the minimum ticket size was a million dollars. But Daniel, I got to ask, right now, with all the government regulations and everything there, what's hindering the progress in this area? Is there any changes that you'd like to see being made? I'm actually relatively pro-regulation. I think we've seen consumers be very vulnerable and and really get taken advantage of in recent years by these emission-free trading apps largely. When, for example, Robinhood launched, it took a very long time for people to start asking questions because they were excited. Wow, commission. And originally they're advertising basically free and then they have to add the commission part or in front of that. But it took a few years for people to start asking questions questions and saying, Hey, if it's free, how do these guys make money? That's when it became very controversial. And that's when I started getting questions from friends that were using Robinhood um, in probably 2018, around there. And, and that's when I had to explain to them that these brokerages, uh, whether app-based or not, the majority of their income is not coming from commissions. It's coming from payment for order flow and uh, securities lending, margin lending, and, and whatnot. This is a marketing gimmick that has just really worked well. They actually got fined $65 million, the largest fine by the SEC, essentially not really disclosing how they made the majority of their money. And, and I, I think that was a record. In many ways, I, I do believe that investors need to be protected from companies because most companies in the space are not buy it first. You have to consider the difference between a fiduciary and non-fiduciary. Broker-dealer apps like Robinhood and Webull and TD Ameritrade, they are non-fiduciary. That means they do not have a legal requirement to do what's in your best interest. RIAs do have a fiduciary requirement where they have to do what's in your best interest as an investor. And then within that, there's a lot of rules and regulations that are in place to protect investors. I don't necessarily think that there's any regulations within that have prevented us from being able to innovate in in the space. I'm actually interested to see uh, how that's going to evolve over time. I know there is a lot of different literature that's more recently come out on this. I think one of the books that or papers I was reading recently was called Regulating Robo-Advice Across the Financial Services. And that's a great kind of uh, summation of what's going on from a legal perspective. 
How has Merrill Lynch, Charles Schwab, and all these kind of, I almost want to say legacy brokers, how have they not been completely disrupted by Robinhood and Webull and these free apps or free trading apps? They actually have. They, especially the, the apps, since they launched the ones that are probably the most prominent now are Betterment and, and Wealthfront. Since they started uh, tapping into that market, the, the big players, the Vanguards, the Schwabs, the Merrill Lynch's had to build comparable. Luckily, what all these do is exactly the same thing. They all do essentially kind of modern portfolio theory as a foundation, mean variance optimization portfolios. That's very cookie cutter for the most part. The largest in the world is actually Vanguard now by assets. And a lot of people don't know that. And Schwab, I believe, is the second. They had a, such a large existing client base that all they have to do is offer this additional robo offering. Honestly, you could probably do yourself in, in Excel and, and pay a lot less fees with a simple YouTube video. I don't think most people understand how, how simple what they what this process really is that these traditional apply. But, but in terms of disruption, they were disrupted and they adapted. And now they're actually the, the biggest players in the industry. What about the gamification? That's that you hear in the news, how these apps are addictive for millennials and people at home that maybe lost their jobs and they're just using it as almost like casinos, almost like it's Vegas. What about the gamification part of these apps? I think the, the gamification was one of the primary drivers of these tens of millions of new investors that became investors in the last two years. And much of that was probably driven by Reddit and, and what happened with GameStop and AMC, where essentially people were coming together to fight the the hedge funds in Wall Street and squeeze the shorts, as they say. And it was just very exciting for people hearing about a thousand percent return as a possible or 10,000%. It all of a sudden it became potentially real impact on people's lives. Most advisors, you sit down with them and they show you a potential growth chart where you're returning 7% a year. And most people, if they start with $1,000, they see that they just made $70 that year. They'd rather go take that and uh, spend it on a nice restaurant once a year. It's, it doesn't seem worthwhile to them. This gamification definitely was a big attribute there. Unfortunately, it is not very good for clients. For example, on, on these apps, if, if it goes up 5 or 6%, you may get a push notification that says, hey, doing really well today. For, for investors, that may mean, hey, maybe they'll continue to do well and they'll buy the stock or they'll buy a call option with the highest strike price expiring next week with less than a quarter of a percent probability of going in the money or making a single dollar on it. Unfortunately, there's actually a lot of evidence that has happened. And there's a paper called Attention-Induced Trading Evidence from Robinhood Users. And it was written by, I believe, four. And they examined kind of the impact of gamification on returns, and especially for new investors and, and less investors. Well, then I got to ask, how is it different? And how is, is what you're doing not already out there in the market? How is it cutting edge? I think that's a fairly difficult question to answer. It's like, why hasn't anybody invented a bicycle lock that shoots 
noxious chemicals when a thief cuts it. I think you have to be aware of what inputs that you're looking at in order to really innovate in the space. So I think to a degree, one large differentiation is yes, legally we are a fiduciary and we're a we fall into the robo industry within wealth tech, which is within fintech. However, from from a product perspective, we're really quantitative investment marketplace. One way of thinking about it is where if you join Wealthfront or Betterment, you answer a bunch of questions in a risk questionnaire. You, they understand your risk tolerance and they spit out an allocation for you. That would be, if you did, that would be a single side pocket on our platform that may be within the growth category. And it may have a recommended holding period of seven plus years and a risk of certain volatility and certain drawdown and whatnot. But we offer dozens of other strategies that do very well in other kinds of markets, including trend following strategies, mean reversion strategies and, and so on. But I think the, the truth is the this hasn't really been done is for people like myself and our team, and we're a bunch of kind of entrepreneurial spirits and hedge fund guys and overall growth hackers and, and whatnot, it would, we would make a lot more money in the short term if we just started a hedge fund. And I think most people that have expertise in the space, that's what they do. They start a hedge fund. And in the short term, they, they make good money, they acquire assets and, and whatnot. I think fundamentally, the entrepreneur in me doesn't care about the short term as much as I care about long-term impact and doing positive. That's why we took this on. We do realize it's going to be a long journey ahead of us. It will require kind of a paradigm shift in thinking for a lot of investors and probably a decent amount of learning about the implications of investing in different kinds of strategies and strategy diversification. I think that's really the simplest answer is in the short term, financially, most people would take the hedge fund route. And then I have to ask, you'd mentioned quantitative before, what's a quantitative portfolio? And then I want to ask, I got to hear a story or two of your company right now, of your journey, if you can share it. Sure. Quantitative portfolios is quite simply a systematic trading and rebalancing strategy that essentially removes the human interaction from the process. As it turns out, humans are pretty bad at a lot of things, especially trading and especially applying systematic strategy to trading. It's very difficult as a trader to see a position drop 20% and, and follow the rules that you have set out for yourself. That's pretty. That's a simple explanation. In terms of stories in the company, we truthfully, I think we try to be as boring as possible. You're highly regulated in this business and we, we try not to do anything too crazy. I think it's crazy already just taking on such a large industry that's well established. But I think Anything very important is worth pursuing regardless of outcome. I think the biggest bubble right now is not in crypto. It's not in SPACs. It's really in, in this existing investment methodology, this mean variance optimization and mostly executed with these, these exchange traded funds that follow different indexes. I think that is probably uh, more of a risk to the portfolios of people in the future than, than anything else because there's where most people are essentially diversified for just one kind of economic regime. We don't know if uh, we're going to continue to have low interest rates in the bull market. Right now, every, everybody's a genius. I, mean, I don't have a super exciting story. I guess the most exciting story is about my, our latest business expense on how we acquire investors in the company, at least not 
for assets under management. The pandemic was a very interesting time to, to pitch investors and it was very difficult to get a meeting. I actually bought a three-wheel motorcycle with that's top down. It's extremely COVID friendly. It's called a slingshot. And on occasion, we'll take potential investors to lunch in it and have a great time. And hopefully they they see the vision and join us in, in the pursuit. But that's the most excitement I think I've had in the last couple of months. Well, I can't wait to ride shotgun on the slingshot, but we got a little bit of time left. I got to ask, where do you see your company in the next five years? Where do you see the industry in the next five years? Or is five years far ahead that it's more just to think the next six months or, or what's on the horizon? Yeah, there's, I, I think the interest in investing that was spurred mostly by the pandemic and, and people getting free money and GME and AMC and gamification, all these things have created unstoppable catalysts for people. I think people want to learn what the best best methodologies are for. And I think five years ago or or even less than that, people didn't really question the strategies. It was always uh, save a certain amount of money, invest into a diversified set of ETFs, which as it turns out, isn't really diversified because correlations approach one during a black swan event and, and and on. But I think we're going to see a lot more tool and investing strategies available to retail investors. The because the hurdle of teaching investors the implications of those strategies is going to become smaller and smaller. I think people have a lot of incentive now to learn in more detail how certain strategies operate and what kind of macroeconomic environments that they do well and how they should be uh, investing their capital. Fantastic. And if anyone wants to find out more information about you, your company, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Our website is www.sidepocket.com. And we have pretty much everything on the homepage there. We try to make it as simple to understand as possible for the three different kinds of clients you can call that we've identified. The first big one is we call them the FOMO feelers. And these are the people that are currently using traditional and they're getting market returns where they're seeing their friends just buy and make 100% a year. And then there's the, the second second or the second client is what we call the gamblers or essentially the gamblers. These are the people that just downloaded Robinhood to try it out and end up losing uh, a lot of money uh, trying to day trade and realizing that trading actively is, is not for me. I don't have the time or expertise. And then the third one is really the skeptics that, that really surprised us. These were the people that they don't really have interest in learning how to trade. And they were definitely looking for automation. But more importantly, they didn't think traditional passive investing was worthwhile. 10% a year was a meaningful amount. Really interesting learning about these three kind of clients that we've identified. Fantastic. Just want to let all our listeners know there was no financial advice given on this program. There's going to be that little disclaimer in the show notes saying that none of this was financial advice, just cover ourselves. But Daniel, I got to say, this has been great. I learned a lot and I look forward on having you on our show in the future. I wish you and your company the greatest of success. And considering we all know the same people, a big win for you is a big win for the whole network here. Yep. Thanks, John, for uh, having it. Love talking about this kind of stuff. Fantastic. And all our listeners, if you enjoyed this, please go on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Give us a good review. Check us out on thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. Any of the companies out there, if you're looking for an investment banker to help you with mergers, acquisition, raising growth capital, and that is what I do outside of the podcast, 
please check me out. You can uh, go to my LinkedIn or my email. All that information's online. But for right now, Daniel, I want to thank you one more time for being here on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.